This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Well, good morning. Our Father and God, we thank you for this session, for this time. Please keep our minds and hearts clear. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this talk is titled, was originally titled Salt and Light. I'd like to suggest a couple of other uh, titles that fit with that. Uh, covenant of Salt, a covenant of salt. I want to talk about salt. And I want to talk about the politics of envy. Right? The politics of envy. So, the Lord Jesus compared his followers to two things, salt and light. That's what we're talking about in this conference. This is the standard passage that we go to to look at this is Matthew 5, 13 and 14, salt and light. If salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be trampled on by men, and you don't take a light and hide it under a bushel. So salt that loses its saltiness is despised by men, and as a consequence, is walked on. Light that is hidden from men is not something that they respond to at all, because it's hidden away from them. So we either have the no reaction of contempt, so you're not important enough to respond to, we're just going to walk all over you, or you have the no reaction of ignorance. They don't even know you're there. So there's, they know you're there, but they have contempt for you, and they walk all over you, or you've hidden your light under a bushel, and they have no reaction because they don't even know of your presence. Now, our task as Christians in this world, Jesus is saying in this passage, is to get a reaction. We're supposed to get a reaction, and if they hold us in contempt and walk all over us, we're not getting that reaction. And if we hide the light under a bushel, we don't get that reaction. So, according to this passage, we have to be salty Christians. We have to be salty Christians. So, the obvious question is, what does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be salt? And of course, naturally, I know you're all thinking this, our first reaction should be to turn to the book of Leviticus. <laughs> I'm having a little fun. All right, so y- you ought not to think of old bluegrass tunes of Salty Dog and, you know, all the- You don't just randomly collect salt imagery, although some of it, salt being such a universal um, human experience, our experience with salt being that way, there are a lot of things that you get, salt is a preservative and salt is a a seasoning, but we should always beware of going outside the scriptures first. So when uh, we can learn things about the world and God reveals himself in the world, but it should always be... um, intra-scriptural comparisons first. What does the Bible say first? In Leviticus 2, 12 and 13, I want you to listen to this. As for the oblation of the first fruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar, but they shall, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savor. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat, of, from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. 
All right, so, as for the oblation of the first fruits, you shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savor. And every oblation of thy meat offering thou shalt season with salt. Notice that this requirement is given in the context of a first fruits offering. It is an offering of thanksgiving. This is a thanksgiving offering. You've uh, gathered in the first of your harvest. You're presenting the first fruits to God. This is a happy time. This is a thanksgiving time. Um, it's not the full harvest home offering because the whole, it's the first fruits, not the whole harvest, but it's the same demeanor. It's the same joy. God has given you a crop. You've taken in the first fruits. You're offering up the first fruits, and you have to make a point to include the salt, all right? So the, this, the context of what salt means is in the context of a thanksgiving offering. And then Leviticus goes on to say, and to make, make sure, actually, this is the salt of the covenant, so it's generalized. This is a generalized teaching. It's the salt of the covenant. And then he says, oh, yeah, make sure you include this salt with all your offerings, everything you do. Everything you offer up to God should include this salt. And it's, so, and it's called the salt of the covenant. In Numbers 18, 19, you have the same thing. It's called the salt of the covenant. That, that, you would think that that would be an important theme, an, an important type, an important image. Salt is connected to the covenant. It appears to me to be the passage, this, Levit, this Leviticus passage, appears to me to be the passage that Paul is alluding to here. In Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always uh, with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, we're talking about salt and light. We're talking about public square life in public, Christian life out in the uh, eye of the public. And Paul says here, I want you to know how to answer every man. Whatever situation you're in, I want you to know how to respond. In the previous talk, we saw that this, you have a similar sort of thing. In, uh, you, you may have an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that is in you. And Paul says, let your speech be always with grace. Grace, seasoned with salt. And I think that's echoing Leviticus, where it says, um, and every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. So your speech is an offering. Your speech is a sacrificial offering. Your speech to men about God is an offering to God about men. There's uh, There's an interplay there. So let your speech be gracious. Let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And remember that the context is thanksgiving. All right, it's it's thanksgiving, gratitude, joy, that you may know how to answer every man. Notice also that this element, whatever it is, enables you to answer every man and to have an answer that's distinct from whatever it would be that they would say in that given situation. This includes discourse in the public square in addition to conversations over the back fence with your neighbor. Now then, in this context, Jesus gives us an odd juxtaposition between in the Gospel of Mark, when he uses this uh, uh, salt, um, salt and light uh, image, or when he speaks of salt, paralleling Matthew 5, Jesus gives us an odd juxtaposition between being salted with fire in judgment and salted 
with salt. He says that to be salted with salt is good, and he ties it in with sacrifices. He then ties those sacrifices in with our lives with one another. All right, what does he say? Mark 9, 48 through 50. He says, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, for everyone shall be salted with fire, that's the judgment, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. All right, so he's echoing Leviticus and Numbers. Every sacrifice shall be salted with salt, and he's giving us salted with fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, or salted with salt. Salt is good, he says. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? And then, this is the kick. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Well, that's, that's interesting. Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. So notice he says, every sacrifice is salted with salt. He says, salt is good, not the... Uh, not the It's not good to be salted with fire, but it is good to be salted with sacrificial salt, which, remember, comes from an offering of thanksgiving, which is extended to all the sacrifices. Thanksgiving is to be pervasive. And then he says, salt is good, but don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness, because how can you season saltless salt? And then he says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, taking these passages together... I understand salt to be a type of thanks, not a kind of, but a type, um, looking forward to the New Testament, a type of thanksgiving, a type of gratitude, and this means that salt means freedom from envy. Salt means freedom from envy. Let me say that a third time. Salt means freedom from envy. Gratitude and thanksgiving excludes, by necessity, every form of envy, harping, criticism, where you're snarking at, why did he get that, and why did she, why did, why don't I rate, that sort of thing. If you're just simply grateful, down to the ground, for everything that God has given you, you're going to be free from covetousness, you're going to be free from jealousy, you're going to be free from snark, you're going to be free from every form of of envy. That's what the salt is. And when you lose your saltiness, what have you lost? You've lost your gladness. You've lost your joy. You've lost your thanksgiving. You've lost your peace with God. Now, we want to be salt and light in the world. We don't want to be um, we we are not a um, souped up mystery religion where we're not, where we retreat behind the four walls and do our thing, and then we go out and just live our lives the way everybody else does. Jesus wants us to be different in the world. He wants us to be different in the world, and as I said last night, this is because we are the the prototype of humanity 2.0. We are, uh, what are we we doing out there? Well, we're beta testing this thing. There are bugs. There are problems in the church. People track things in. You know, there are all kinds of snarls. Pastoral snarls are like the mercies of God. They are new every morning. (laughs) You you name it, it's going to come rolling in at you. Well, it's like you had this ramshackle house that, that humanity is living in. 
God announces a, remodel, a gigantic remodeled project. You've got the old builders who made a mess. He moves in a bunch of new builders living in the house, remodeling the whole thing, and we're all living in the house at the same time. That's God's plan for humanity. That's why there are conflicts. That's why there are differences of opinion. Now, he wants us to be salt in the world, and he wants us to have sacrificial salt, gratitude, freedom, joy, gladness, freedom from envy, which enables us to have peace among ourselves, right? We, we can have peace among ourselves only if we are not envious people. If you are envious people, if you are, you are an ungrateful people. Grateful people are not envious, and envious people are ungrateful. Now, when we talk about salt and light, our natural tendency is to think of well, activism of various kinds, uh, making a difference. And I am not, believe me, I am not in any way uh, wanting to be thought of as disparaging activism. Every one of you who gets involved in you know, petitions and political endeavors and making a difference, God, uh, you know, blessings on your head. God bless you. Go fight, win. That, that's, we're all about that. So voting, yard signs, picketing abortion clinics, calling your congressman, not calling your congressman names, but calling your congressman, uh, and so on. If it must come down to that, for the, it, 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 all of this must come down to that for the same reason that rubber meets road and metal meets metal when you let the clutch out. At some point, at, at some point it has to engage. At some point you have to... Um, be face-to-face -face with a candidate and ask him a question or, or talking to the mayor. or At some point, it's got to come to that. I uh, often recommend The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce, a 19th century uh, character, a reprobate, um, but very insightful man. And he, I think it's under the, um, his definition of valor. He, he takes an example from the Civil War where... Uh, a, a general or some, some officer is yelling at a lieutenant, sir, move your troops forward once. Why aren't you not moving? And the lieutenant said, sir, I'm convinced that any further, uh, any further display of valor on the part of my troops will bring us into contact with the enemy. <laughs> but this is why I'm not moving forward. Well, we, public engagement, cultural engagement means at some point we have to engage. All right, so I'm not disparaging that point of engagement. I'm talking about the, the spiritual heart prep work before you engage so that when you engage, the results are what God has in mind. So, but, and you knew a but was coming. Engagement is not what establishes the contrast. The mere fact of engagement doesn't establish the contrast. We are not to be the same kind of people as they are, striving for a different kind of end. We are not the same kind of people trying to strive for a different kind of end. We are a different kind of people striving for a different end. We have to be different before we can strive differently. We, we have to be different before we can be going in a different direction. The world is chock full of reformers uplifters, people who want to make a difference, who are the same kind of people that caused the, the problems we're suffering under now. Have you ever noticed that uh, in Congress, they're all, in Congress, don't, 
um, when I said earlier, calling your congressman names. Remember that in covenantal realities, your congressman represents you, and they represent you well. All right? Our leaders represent us well. It's not an injustice that we are being currently represented by them. They are a good image of what's, uh, of what's going on. But have you ever noticed that there's a constant clamor for reform? We need tax reform. We need voting uh, law reform. We, ne- we need campaign finance reform. We, ne- we need reform, reform, reform. Why do we need reform? Because we're always trying to fix the previous reforms. Every reform is trying to fix the previous reform. Everything we, we're trying to fix is our previous fix. We are on this squirrel cage run, and we're trying to fix the fact that we can't fix anything. And so there, but there, there's no shortage, there's no end of reformers, people who are saying, I've got an idea, and I've got a project, and I've got an agenda, and I've got this. It's always going to turn out the same way. The same kind of people, unregenerate people, striving for a different end, hoping that it's going to turn out differently this time, are, are doomed to perpetual disappointment. And Christians who are functionally, functioning, not with gratitude, but with our own version of envy, who get in there to make a difference, it's going to turn out the same way for us. When we, we are not the same kind of citizen striving for a different kind of city. We have to be a different kind of citizen striving for a different kind of city. As the who taught us in Won't Get Fooled Again, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Right? That's, why, that's what always happens. You bring in the new guy, and it's, everybody's got their hopes high, and then it comes crashing down, and now we need a new reform, and it's, it's this, this perpetual cycle of hope and disappointment. We must be different kinds of citizens of a different city seeking to build a completely different sort of thing. This is Monty Python eschatology. And now for something completely different. We can't be just a, Christ, a thinly Christianized version of the same ingratitude, of the same kind of snark and envy. We can't be that. We have to make the contrast sharp. So before you get to the point of engagement, before our, your, your troops clash with their troops, before we get to the rubber meets the road part, before the metal meets metal in the clutch, before that all happens, we have to establish our own hearts and lives and families and congregations in a certain demeanor. Our sacrifice that we're offering up to God must be salted. It must be salted. It's going to be useless if it isn't. So what is our banner? What is our flag? When we go out to meet the enemy, when we go out there in the public square, when we go out to declare the crown rights of King Jesus, as we ought to do, what distinguishes the fact that we, what distinguishes the fact that we are, in fact, a liberation army and not just the next round of tyrants? We want to be a true liberating force. The banner that has to fly above us has to be freedom from envy. If we want to make any difference in the public square, we have to be utterly free from envy. How does Paul set the contrast? Philippians. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputing. 
Do everything without murmuring, and murmuring no envy, no complaining. You might say, I'm, I'm not complaining, I'm just commenting. <laughs> no, everything without murmuring and disputing. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Right? Salt and light. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Hold forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So how do we make a difference? How do we engage? Stop complaining. Really? What does it say in the Greek? <laughs> let's, run away to the, let's run away to the Greek. Stop murmuring. Stop complaining. It's astonishing. This is, more Christians ought to spend more time reading through the experience of Moses leading the people of God in the wilderness. Complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. Murmur, murmur, murmur. The food and the... Uh, we don't have what we had back in Egypt. We don't have this. We don't have water. We don't have... All, complaining. And Paul says here, do everything. Do all things. Drive your car. Park your car. Take care of your kids. Pack, them, pack your kids uh, here. Pack your kids there. Uh, in, uh, deal with disparaging... Uh, comments uh, in the supermarket, you know, people think it's a unique joke, you know. My daughter, um, Rachel, said, uh, she didn't actually say this, but when people, do you know, you know, the, the people set themselves up for a wit. You see, with, Rachel's got six kids. Do you know, do you know what causes that? <laughs> and Rachel said, I, I've thought of saying yes, and it looks like I'm getting a whole lot more of it than you are. <laughs> <laughs> So, that's the spirit. All things, all things without murmuring or disputing or complaining. Culture war is waged by provoking to envy and not by being provoked to envy. Culture war is engaged. How, how are we salty? We are salty when we live in a free, glad, joyful, thankful way free from envy, envy, which provokes to envy. How, how can I be free of myself? How can I get free of these voices in my head? We are born, all of us are born, casting sidelong glances. Right? Jesus in Matthew 20 tells the story of the parable of the, of the people who were hired at different times of the day, and then the master pays the people at the end of the day the full amount, and the people who'd worked the whole day said, oh, we're going to get something we're going to get some, some really great bonus here. And then he pays them just what he promised them. And what do did, what did they do? They complain. Why? Because I am unhappy, not because you shorted me, because you gave me just what you promised to give me. I am unhappy, not because you shorted me, but because you were generous to him. What is that? That is the enemy of our souls. That is the thing that keeps us from being the salt and light that's what keeps us from being at peace with one another. And we're not, when we're not at peace with one another, how can, we, how can we be salty in the world? How can we shine light in the world? The way we make a contrast, the way we, the, the way we stand out, 
like a bright star against a black sky. How can you stand out? How can you stand out? Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Be the person at the office. Be the person in your school. Be the person who's, who's thinking, oh, and here's a paycheck. Instead of, why? That doesn't stand out. Oh, boy, <laughs> they paid me again. <laughs> Show, showing your coworkers, look at this, look at this. I can't believe I have such a good time every day, and then they give me money. So culture war is waged by provoking people to envy, not not in a voodoo doll sense. You're not trying to make them stumble or make them sin, but you want to live just free so that people who are slaves look at that freedom and say, what is going on there? What's happening? There's a peace that passes understanding. There's There's a peace that's going on that I can't see, that's invisible to me, And yet, this person is going through all the same turmoil at work that I'm going through, and yet he is serene, and I'm all churned up. That provokes to envy. So, culture war provokes to envy. It does not get provoked to envy. And let me add an important distinction here. Stop envying the godless. Stop envying the godless. Psalm 73 says this. The psalmist says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. It's a waste. Why why have I served God? It's a waste. That's his initial reaction. Why do I do what is right? Because the godless cheat and they get all the stuff. They get all this stuff. And a few verses later, he comes to a better conclusion. He says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, I under, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. Do not envy the godless who are partying on the edge of a precipice. They're having all, they get all kinds of joy and all kinds of returns and they grab their money and they do all these, they get, have all this stuff, but... They're eating and drinking and being merry because tomorrow they die. So live in such a way as that they start to envy you, despite their slanders. They say that you're nuts. They say that you're crazy. They say that you're out of your mind. They call you an extremist, all of those things. But despite all that, they are provoked to envy you. I I wish... I had that kind of marriage. I wish my kids would still talk to me like yours do. I wish that I could enjoy my work. I wish I had a reason for being here. I would, uh, what is that? That's what, that's what you're doing. That's the thing that makes saltiness salty. That's the thing that unbelievers cannot walk on with contempt, gratitude. Let's take a test case. Consider the Pauline doctrine of the conversion of the Jews. The Pauline doctrine of the conversion of the Jews. The driving engine of that conversion, Paul teaches, is jealousy. When the Jews are converted, when the Jews are converted to Christ, 
what will it be? What will drive it? It will be cultural jealousy. It will be cultural jealousy. And this driving engine has been too long long neglected, and the world has covered that neglect in layers of protective coatings. They don't want anybody to get at it because they don't want to have the world blessed in the way that Paul says the world will be blessed when the Jews are converted. If their rejection has been such a blessing, if if their rejection of the gospel, as he teaches in Romans 11, has been such a blessing to the Gentile world, what will their restoration be but life from the dead? So if, if the Jews falling away, if the Jews rejecting the Messiah has been a blessing for the Gentiles, he's reasoning a fortiori, it's going to be a, a monstrous blessing for the Gentiles when the Jews are converted. The engine that drives this process, as Paul describes it, is jealousy and emulation. Jealousy and emulation. Not us for them, but them for us. And in these, our politically correct days, we have declared war on all notions of ethnic disparity, superiority, cultural superiority. Everybody's just declared a priori to be the same. Everybody's the same. And if everybody's the same, who can envy anybody else? Well, what happens is if you declare everybody the same, everybody envies everybody else. You you can't get rid of envy by any means other than the death of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the death of envy. That's the only way we can be free from envy. That's the only way we can be free from sin. That's the only way we can be liberated into gratitude. I heard one speaker one time say, if you, if you stormed into some office complex, a big uh, you know, cubicle, uh, cubicle farm, and you went in there and took down all the cubicles and you cleared off everybody's desk and gave everybody the same computer and the same phone and the same chair and you put everybody in the same uniform and there's 50 workers on this floor and you just did this egalitarian paradise thing where everybody had the same number of sheets of paper, the same, everything was the same. The only thing that was different was your computer may have had a different serial number. And so you, you do all this, you, everybody happy? Is everybody happy now? Are we done with murmuring and complaining? Yes. And then you storm out having fixed it. Somebody is going to say or think, my desk is closer to the window. That's what's going to happen. You can't get rid of envy by leveling. You can't get rid of envy by leveling. So, we think that, uh, we, we think that any kind of disparity uh, is, is just wicked or wrong, and so uh, we reject what the Bible says. But, notice what Paul says about the conversion of the Jews. Romans 10, 19. But I say, did not Israel know... First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Paul, uh, Paul says that God says to Israel, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. The Jews for centuries had been looking down on the Gentiles as pagan, idolater, outsiders, and God says, I'm going to make them worshipers of the Most High God, I am going to bless them with all the blessings of Deuteronomy. I'm going to pour out my blessings on them. And you're not going to have those blessings, and you're going to be provoked 
by what I give to the Gentiles. That's a good thing that God is doing. Romans 11, 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Why did God save you, O Gentile? Because he wanted to provoke the Jews. Why does God save Gentiles? Because he wanted to stir up the Jews. Romans eleven fourteen. if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. If by any means I might provoke them which are my flesh. Okay, so this shouldn't be too controversial so far. But there's no way to defuse the envy bomb without having, running the risk of having it blow up in your face. And so again, here it goes. Let me say something briefly about the Jews. Jews comprise less than 1% of the world's population and yet make up about 25% of the world's capitalists and entrepreneurs. 1% of the world's population, 25% of the world's capitalists and entrepreneurs. If you look at international awards for intellectual achievement, like Nobel before they started giving that one away, um, or chess competitions, or patents, or musicianship, right? Chess players, violin players, that sort of thing. Go on. Disproportionate achievement is the name of the game. Disproportionate achievement is the name of the game. The cultural superiority of the Jews is striking, stark, and obvious. Now, when you say that, when you say something like that, what's the first thing that people think? Well, they're cheating. Conspiracy. They've got people hidden behind the curtain, moving levers, and they're, they're, the contests are rigged. So what ha- what's happening? The Jews are provoking Gentiles to envy, which is a Pauline photo-negative. It's completely screwed up. So, here are a few preliminary thoughts. First, Paul knew his kinsmen. He was a great representative of them. Paul knew his kinsmen. This is a group of people, he is saying, on whom this tactic would work. What can you say about high achievers? Do high achievers notice when other people become high achievers? Do high achievers know that they're high achievers? Or has it completely escaped them? (laughs) Do unregenerate high achievers know? Do unregenerate high achievers know that they're high achievers? Yeah. And what happens when they start to hear footsteps? What happens when someone has all the achievement, all right, all the achievement and none of the angst? One of the most glorious pictures of this uh, is in that great film, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. You have two runners, high achievers, one a Jew, one a Christian, right? One a Jew, one a Christian. Both of them are spectacular athletes. The Jew is driven. He is obsessed. And the Christian is free. Right? This, if you take that movie, watch it again if, you haven't seen, if you've never seen it, you must see it. And if you haven't seen it in a while, you must see it again. All right? I think there's a, a wonderfully 
understated thing in that movie, in, incidentally. Uh, I think some people don't notice it. But at the end of the, the, the movie concludes with the uh, death, of the funeral of Abrams, the, the Jewish runner who was tormented. And it's a Christian funeral, right? It's a Christian funeral. It's not a funeral in a synagogue. It's a Christian funeral. So you have this driven Jew and this liberated Christian. When I run, Linzel says, I feel his pleasure, right? Abrams is running with demons on his, on his heels. He's driven, 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 driven. And Linzel is just liberated. And they both run fast, right? You've got two different kinds of high achievement. Paul knew his kinsmen. He knew that this was a group of people on whom this tactic would work. Second, using the tactic does not consist of uh, whining Gentiles accusing Jews of cheating. That's not the tactic. Do all things without murmuring or disputing. Okay? No whining. No complaining. When you look at the disproportionate rewards and the disproportionate achievement and the disproportionate everything, you don't say, oh, a secret cabal. You say, man, I better get my rear end in gear. For Gentiles to give way to the little man syndrome is not going to provoke anybody to anything except me to exasperation, possibly. Third, this means that cultural achievement and blessing, far from being a distraction from the gospel, is a necessary adjunct to the gospel. Cultural achievement and blessing is not a distraction from the gospel. If you just say, I'm going to keep it to three or four simple spiritual principles, we're not going to do anything, you know, we're not going to get involved in anything because we're just going to state the gospel over and over and over again. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel involves and entails the message of world conquest, and that includes everything that men do in the world. It includes music, it includes architecture, it includes law, it includes governance, it includes uh, literature. And so when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we are not saying Jesus is Lord behind our eyes and between our ears or down in our, down in our hearts. Where? Down in my heart. Where? <laughs> Jesus is, Jesus is uh, his Lordship is cosmic. His Lordship encompasses everything. So, cultural achievement and blessing, of course, cultural achievement and blessing detached from Jesus is what? It's an idol, right? And all idols must be toppled. But let me say, let me say something briefly about that. There are two kinds of idols. There's the bale that you have to, how do you respond to a bale, a statue of bale that's set up in the village? Well, it has to go over. It has to be toppled. You have to uh, hook ropes to it like they do in Eastern Europe with the statues of Lenin. You have bales have to be hauled off to the dump. Ashtaroths have to be hauled off to the dump. That's one kind of idolatry. But the other kind of idolatry is where you're idolizing things that are lawful and good in their own right. You idolize your family or your job or your car or the or your money. And what happens there is when you repent of idolatry, the idol stays. The the former idol stays. When you, if you've idolized your wife, you don't repent of idolatry by shooting her, right? You repent, you, you make a, 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 an adjustment in your heart. There's a Copernican revolution where everything changes. So 
Um, and by Copernican revolution, think of it this way. Many, many Christians think that uh, we live in a me generation, a me-centered time, and the me, the ego, is the sun, and your job and your family and your vocation are all the planets that revolve around me. And then when you become a Christian, many people think that becoming a Christian means adding a new planet. Now you have the Jesus planet. Now you have the church planet. But no, becoming a Christian is a Copernican revolution. Jesus becomes the sun, and everything revolves around him. All right, that's, that's what happens. So you don't want your kid's violin lessons to become an idol. Right? You don't want that. You don't want your kid's scholastic achievements and performance at college to become an idol. You don't want any of those things. And in order to avoid those things, you have to keep the cross central, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus central. So here, think these thoughts about Jesus in your head is not the kind of thing that will make the Jews think long and hard about the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. That's, that's not going to do it. That won't do it. Fourth, and this I think should be obvious from what I've said already, and remember, this is, a, this is a tactic that applies between all peoples and all tribes and all nations, but we just have a test case of it in the New Testament with the Jews. But fourth, anti-Semitism, which sometimes is clothed in Christian ease, Christian talk, Bible talk, is the ungospel. It's the anti-gospel. It turns the Apostle Paul uh, on his head. It does whatever it can to impede the fulfillment of the Great Commission, including the fulfillment of that commission to the Jews. The Puritans knew that the conversion of the Jews was the linchpin, the linchpin, for the successful evangelization of the world. The Puritans prayed for the conversion of the Jews, consistently, constantly. All right, they, the conversion of the Jews was the linchpin for the evangelization of everyone else. They prayed and they labored to that end. It is therefore not a coincidence that the Puritans and their heirs have produced the only kind of culture that could possibly have this kind of impact on the Jews. What does freedom from envy do? It liberates you. It sets you free. And it sets you free to serve God in everything that you do, and your theology starts to come out your fingertips. And your theology comes out your fingertips in everything you do. And not only that, you're doing what you're doing like Eric Lenzel. When you, when you work on your car, when you, when you t tear down the engine, you feel his pleasure. When you play the violin sonata, you feel his pleasure. When you are throwing the frisbee in the yard with your kids, you feel his pleasure. When you're laboring, cleaning up the dishes after a, a mammoth hospitality dinner, you feel his pleasure. When you do all the, and, and of course, when you gather in the sanctuary and you worship God, you feel his pleasure. It's all liberated. It's grateful. It's glad. And that's what's attractive. That's, that's what gives salt its pungency. Now, when we are trying to avoid envy, when we're trying to avoid this, this uh, well, let me say one other thing about this. Envy is one of those sins, it's one of the deadly sins that is rarely addressed today, right? We, we have institutionalized it, I, uh, envy as a virtue. So if, going back to the Matthew 20 parable about the workers in the vineyard, if any landowner today tried that stunt, he would be 
the recipient of a class action lawsuit. And everybody in the country would think that the vineyard owner was the culprit. He was the evil man. And the workers would have the sympathy of everyone. So, when we are, temp- when we are tempted, this, you'll, some of you may have heard this before, but um, when we are tempted to envy, and when we fall into sin because of envy, you might call this uh, the assault of the world, the enticement of the world, comes at you in 3G. 3G. Gold, glory, girls. Gold, glory, girls. Money, honor, sex. This is where people trip up. So we are to hate envy. We are to hate envy, and we're to hate it in ourselves first. Hating envy, we we should hate envy if it involves money. We should hate envy if it involves honor, and we should hate envy if it involves sex. Hate financial envy. I alluded to this last night in Exodus 18, What kind of rulers should we pray for? What kind of rulers should we want? What kind of rulers should we be after? Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. If you don't hate covetousness, You're not qualified biblically to rule 10 people. You're not qualified to rule 10 if you don't hate covetousness. If you don't hate the idea of taking other people's money. Now, Margaret Thatcher had really had her, uh, an insightful uh, observation when she said, the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. Sooner or later, you run out of other people's money. Now, what, where are we culturally? Another economist, I've forgotten his name, said anything that cannot continue on indefinitely won't. <laughs> right? Anything that cannot continue on indefinitely won't. Well, we are, in the land, we are in bizarro world. We are in the land of the absurd when it comes to pillage, money, and it's because it's all driven by covetousness. What was the most recent campaign about the one, you remember just within the last year? The 1%. We have to do something about the 1%, that greedy 1%, those graspers at the top. The top 1% of our income earners in the United States generate 40% of our government's tax revenues. 40% of the federal government's money that they get in taxes come from that 1% who are not carrying their fair share. Anybody who thinks that the 1% are not carrying their fair share is envy-ridden. It's just evil. This would be from people who earn more than $388,000. The top 5% carry 60% of the load, The top 10% generate 71% of the government's revenue. The top 25% write the checks for 86% of the revenue. And the top 50% generate 97% of all government tax revenue. 
If you, do not, if you do not recoil from this system as evil, you are part of the problem. Right? Why, why, do, why are we represented by thieves in Washington? Because of thievery in our hearts. We are represented by thieves in Washington because we have thievery and envy, and I'd like a little piece of that. I'd like a little piece of that. What we need to learn how to do is refuse the benefits first. Whenever the government offers to write you a check, they got it from somewhere. They took it from somebody, and they took it from somebody because men with block letters on their jackets and guns would take that person away if they didn't cough it up. We have larceny in our hearts. The reason we are represented, this is one of the reasons why I don't think we ought to have a chaplain in Congress, right? Uh, The Bible teaches that you shouldn't make a den of thieves into a house of prayer. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Maybe I misquoted that, right? So, hate financial envy. Hate envy that has anything to do with money. Hate the envying of honor. Just a few verses before the passage I read on shining as stars against the black night of ingratitude, it says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Philippians 2.3. It says, Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Why was he asked to be the Bible study leader? Why was he admitted to this program? Why was he called to be a pastor there? Why was he asked to be a deacon? Why, uh, why, 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 why? I need to be honored more than I'm being honored. Well, whenever you have that kind of selfish ambition, you have every evil practice. That's what James says. If I could uh, recommend a book by Dave Harvey, uh, Dave Harvey called Rescuing Ambition. Rescuing Ambition. Our problem is not, it's not saying don't be ambitious. Remember, I've, I've been urging cultural achievement, but cultural achievement because you feel as gladness, you feel as pleasure, you feel liberated, right? You don't want to be striving for honors because you're driven, right? And this is easy to, to identify. Everybody who's taught Christian school or not, in fact, this, the problem is oftentimes worse in a Christian school, right? You've got a, a class full of achievers, Will that be on the test? Will that be on the test? I got a 97. The, end, the, earth, the, the apocalypse is near. I, my parents are going to kill me because I got, I got, a, 90, I got a 97. Or I, I'm, right. well, what we have to do, what we have to understand, what we have to come to grips with is that we should do everything that we do from joy and gladness and relief. So, hate the envying of honor. Hate envying money, hate envying honor, hate sexual envy. The same-sex mirage crusade has nothing whatever to do with what people are going to be allowed to do in private, and it has everything to do with what you will be allowed to say about it in public. The issue is not what they are allowed to do in private. The issue is what you're going to be allowed to say about what they're doing in public. We are in this situation where, seriously, that baker in Colorado who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex mirage has to go through mandatory sensitivity training. We don't have 
mandatory sensitivity concentration camps yet with concertina wire surrounding them. But it, it's astonishing to me that we have George Orwell wrote what he wrote about doublespeak. And we have multitudes of people who have read that book and who are aware of it. And it's all unfolding around us. And people seem oblivious to it. But where is this coming from? We are not talking about where, whether private homosexual behavior will be penalized, but whether public opposition to homosexual behavior will be penalized. This is an inescapable concept. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether you impose morality, it's which morality you impose. You have no option. You have no, uh, it's, it's not an option you can check about whether or not we're going to have a morality that we impose. All law is imposed morality. Now, I'm a Christian, so I think the morality that ought to be imposed is God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, you shall not murder. You shall not commit murder. That's why I'm pro-life, because God revealed his will. And what God, the people will say, what, what God? I say the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, going back to what was said in the previous talk. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One time uh, I was debating the head of the American Humanist Association, and, uh, and we were talking about whether biblical law would be um, appropriate for us to use in our, in, in our laws, right? Well, Christians should believe in the absolute, uh, uh, I'm a Christian, this is God's will, this is God's purpose. Once the exegesis is done, we should say, uh, we, sh- we shouldn't take random verses from the Old Testament that we don't understand and apply them, Right? That's not what we're arguing for, but we should argue for biblical law. And he, he, he reacted dismissively. He said, you, uh, the Bible prohibits eating shellfish, right? This, it's absurd and unreliable. You can't use the Bible for uh, using, uh, using as a base for our law. The Bible prohibits eating shellfish. And I said, well, I do grant that the Bible, God did tell his people at one time not to eat Shellfish, and I, I believe that this is the word of God. That, that was that was His law for those, that people at, at that time. We shouldn't have shouldn't eat shellfish then. But you believe that all of us used to be shellfish. <laughs> if we wanted to talk about absurdities, I, I prefer mine. So, but when we're up against the homosexual agenda. Why do we have no answer when the homosexuals envy us our sexual lives? Because that's what it is, incidentally. Right? If, you, if you don't see homosexuality as a, man, as a stark manifestation of envy, right, that's what it is. They're envying us. They're envying us all sorts of things. And this drive for marriage is maybe we can, maybe we can get what they've got this way. Maybe, maybe we can grab it this way. So, why do we not have an answer to them? Why do we not have an answer for them? We don't have an answer for them because we were envying theirs. And that's the absurdity. Uh, we envy their money. We envy their influence. We envy their promiscuity. We envy all kinds of things that we ought not to be envying. It's not until we're free from envy that we're liberated to be salt and light. So, to conclude, in Deuteronomy 28, 
Remember I said last night, Deuteronomy should be one of your favorite books. What was Jesus' favorite book? Maybe I should read it more, right? What was Jesus, when Je- if Jesus were the one doing the book plugs, <laughs> Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Why did God take the Israelites away? Why did their enemies come in and snatch them away? Because you didn't serve God with joy, because you didn't serve him with gladness of heart, for the abundance of stuff. You weren't glad. You weren't thankful. You weren't free. So what was the problem here? Whatever they were doing with the physical salt, their offerings had no salt. Whatever they were doing with physical salt, they may or may not have been putting it on the altar. But what the salt represented, freedom from envy, gratitude, thanksgiving, joy, and gladness, they weren't doing it. There's only one effective response to any of this, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There and only there can envy be put to death. Jesus was betrayed as Pilate, the shrewd political ruler, saw, Jesus was betrayed. Why? Because of envy. Why did they betray Jesus? Why did the Sanhedrin betray Jesus? Because they wished they could be like him. And they couldn't. Not with the condition of their heart. And what they would have to give up to be like him, they didn't want to give up. But they wanted the crowds and the ability to do miracles and and the people following him. They They wanted all that. They turned him over because of envy. And when Jesus died on the cross, you had the death of envy, the death of that which has unregenerate humanity by the throat. And when we serve him as Christians and our, offering of, uh, our offerings to him are seasoned with salt, when we observe the Lord's Supper, what do we call that? What's one of the names of the Lord's Supper? The Eucharist. It's Thanksgiving. That's the salt. Gratitude, joy, thanksgiving is the salt. And in the, in the meantime, whatever the world says to you, whatever the world's enticing you to do, always remember that Bunyan's character, Faithful, had a good hunch. Then it came burning hot in my mind. Whatever he said and however he flattered, when he got me home to his house, he would sell me for a slave. Envy enslaves, Jesus liberates. Our Father and God, we're so grateful for your kindness to us. I pray that you would help us to meditate on these things appropriately and wisely. I pray that you'd identify in our lives for us those areas that we have to clean house. And I pray that we would not try to do it on our own strength or by our own effort, but rather by trusting in you and the the blood of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others. But do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.